This episode is brought to you in part by Our Daily Bread Ministries. Experience the joy and freedom that comes from a faith that perseveres. Check out Unshakable Moxie, growing a resilient faith at unshakablemoxie.com from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Visit unshakablemoxie.com. Paul Kicks, welcome to Viral Jesus. It's my ability to marry Sonia in a former Jim Crow state like Texas, and for the two of us to now raise our three kids in a nation that doesn't harass us for who we are. You know, for the longest time, that was not the case, but it is the case now. So Birmingham to me is an incredibly personal story because it's really my own. The life I'm leading today does not happen without those 10 weeks in 1963. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. Everyone I talk to on this show is someone I follow or was told to follow online. Most of the conversations you'll hear are with people I have never met in person, yet they've impacted how I think. What does it look like for Christians to enter the chat thoughtfully? Let's grow together on Viral Jesus. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Hello, friend. Today's episode is filled with so much insight and knowledge of the civil rights movement. I am honored to even bring it to you today. I sit down with Paul Kicks, and we discuss the 10 weeks in Birmingham that changed America. But before we get to that, are you ready for Social Toolkit? This is where we discover tips and best practices for entering the chat. Today, we sit down with Brady Shearer. Brady is the director of Pro Church Tools and church software platform Nucleus. He helps churches navigate the biggest communication shift in 500 years. Brady, you made a post giving some tips as to how a church could turn their sermon into a week's worth of content. And it got me thinking, do you think that same premise could work for podcasters? I know we have a lot of podcasters who listen to the show. How could podcasters and churches turn one sermon or episode into a week's worth of content that they can keep using online? Yeah, if you spend any time online, I don't know many of us who would balk at the idea that this is possible. Just think about how many podcast clips that you come across on your own feed now and again. The question is, how do we do it well? And the key is you have a, in the case of a sermon, 20, 30, 40 minute message. In the case of a podcast, perhaps it's 40 minutes, 60 minutes, two hours, maybe. So you have all this subject matter. How do we repurpose it effectively for social media? The key is identifying uh, the intersection between your subject matter and the world. So in the church space, I will tell pastors, we're trying to identify the intersection between faith and culture. So think about your podcast's category, subject matter, and then replace faith with that and then culture. Because the idea is you want to create a a short, a reel, a vertical video that is 
something your audience finds compelling, but is also something that would be accessible for somebody that has no affinity with your podcast, maybe even with your world. You know, so often we see churches that we work with, their social sermons reach this wide range of people. Why? Because the subject matter is universal. We know that about scripture, right? Hope, destiny, eternity, mm. purpose, community, parenting, finances. That's all that the Bible speaks to. That's also something that every single human has experience with. And so that's how you reach new audiences. And, you know, speaking specifically to podcasts, we know that if there's one downside of podcasts is that discovery is difficult. Mm -hmm. YouTube coming around and, and, and making a big play in the podcasting world is great because discovery on YouTube is possible. But historically, through Apple Podcasts, discovery has been very challenging. Well, repurposing those long-form episodes into these shorter clips, that's another great way to uh, reach new audiences via social platforms that are in the world of discovery algorithms, uh, sharing content beyond your existing followers. What is the best venue, platform, company to go with for somebody who's starting a podcast to record? In terms of just hosting their podcast? Yeah, uh-huh. No, no, yeah, no, so I'm talking about for the video, for the videos that they record, then they're gonna turn into these social clips. You know, what we find with churches is it's, it's fascinating. We can never predict which platform is going to succeed the most. So with the 150 or so churches that we work with one-on-one, -on -one, we've seen uh, almost equal across the board, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram all be platforms where they're seeing their biggest numbers. There's really no trend that we can pick out. I think it has something to do with your existing audience and age group. You know, we've talked mm. before on previous episodes about the stratification of social. So if your audience is more Gen Z, it would make sense that TikTok, if your mm -hmm. audience is more millennials, Instagram would make more sense. If your audience is more uh, boomers, perhaps Facebook makes sense. If your audience is Gen Alpha, seems unlikely, but one day will be true, YouTube <laughs> shorts. But yeah. uh, even despite that, sometimes we see those trends get bucked. You can turn your content into a week's worth of content by making clips that people can use online. Brady, thank you so much for adding another tool to our social toolkit. Today, we sit down with Paul Kicks. Paul Kicks is an author and writer. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, GQ, and ESPN, The Magazine, among other publications. He lives in Connecticut with his family. I wanted to sit down with Paul when I got my hands on the audible version of his book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live. This is my conversation with Paul Kicks. So I love to open these shows by reading back to my guest something that they've posted online. For you, I found a post that you did on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, and you say oh this, the best way to tell whether a long-form story idea is worth pursuing, question mark, how many ands it has. The more times you can say this happened and this happened and this happened, the better the story. Okay, I absolutely loved that. Please tell us what you mean. So ands are really narrative ands that connect uh, one narrative strand of a story to a still larger one. And I learned this very early in my career from a Pulitzer 
Prize winning writer who then became, I was quite lucky, uh, my first editor. Wow. I was working at an alternative weekly in Phoenix, Arizona, and he had won. His name is Rick Bars, and Rick had won Pulitzer at the LA Times. And basically, what he said was look, if you can say that in this story, uh, I'm going to report that X happened, and then in addition to that, Y happened, and then in addition to that, Z happened, and then in addition to that, you know, A happened. The more of those you can add up, the better mm. your story will be overall. And what I have actually found over the years is it's completely true. Most newspaper stories or now news site stories, they tend to have one to two ands. This guy is cool and he did something. Most magazine pieces tend to have somewhere between three to five ands. And the books that I've published now, you really, they only start to work once you can basically group ands together into thematic larger sequences where you're basically exploring the externality of what's happening across any event and sort of the internality, the internal motivations of what all these different characters are feeling. So the and rule is one that I've relied on now for more than 25 years. So I know I'm going to talk to you about it later. So don't talk about it now, but I know okay. you teach a class on <laughs> storytelling. Okay. I want to ask you about that later. I've been researching you all week and I'm like, I want to take a writing workshop I offer one. So, <laughs> do you do that? Yeah. That's what I wanted to know because I'm sure our listeners would want to know that too. Okay, when do you do these? How do we sign up? I'm really asking. Okay, okay. So, um, so I do something that's called the storytelling you, and it's a okay, and it's a deep dive into how to tell long form stories. Okay. And I do it twice a year. And we've had people who've signed six figure book deals for like north of two hundred fifty thousand dollars. We've had people wow. land in dream publications. We've had people start new businesses that are sort of like storytelling businesses based on what they've learned. People add like six and even seven figure revenue streams. So we've been really successful with the storytelling you. I'm so excited to talk to you today because you're, oh. you know, you do work in investigative journalism. I have found the best people that I talk to on the show are reporters that do long form pieces. I don't know if you know Taylor Lorenz. One yeah. of my favorite episodes that we did. I absolutely love her book. Your latest book is called You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live. 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. Okay, Paul, set the stage for us. What was Birmingham like in the 1960s? And why did this location become so pivotal to the civil rights movement? Also, if you could talk to us about the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and who were the main players in it. Yeah, so... First, what was Birmingham? Uh, Birmingham at that point in time was the most violent, the most racist, the most segregated place in America, which was really mm. saying something in the early sixties. Mm. Birmingham was a place where the Ku Klux Klan castrated black men as a means to intimidate groups like the Southern Christian Leadership Conference from coming to try to stage uh, any sort of protest or movement for equality. Birmingham was a place where cops routinely raped black women in their patrol cars. Birmingham was a mm. place where people were disappeared in the jails. Like you just didn't hear from them or see them anymore. So CBS's Edward R. Murrow, just before King and the rest go down to Birmingham, he files a report from the sort of the core of the city as a way to try to understand why is this place so different from everywhere else. And he said to his producer as he left, I have not seen any place like this since Nazi Germany. 
So that was mm. Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. I think the first thing for your readers to, excuse me, the first thing for our, for our audience, for your listeners to understand is we should disabuse ourselves of the notion that anything about this was going to be foretold, that success was uh, in the offing. I mean, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference at that time, it, it, headed by Martin Luther King Jr., but really composed at that point in time of his deputies, Wyatt Walker as executive director, James Bevel as the director of direct operations, and this one pastor from Birmingham named Fred Shuttlesworth. Those four become the core four protagonists in this book. And from the outset, outset, they did not think they could win in Birmingham. Let's sort of go through the reasons mm. for why. First off, the SCLC was broke at that time. King and the rest, they had staged protests going back to 1955, 1956 in Montgomery. And from 1956 to 1963, they failed abysmally. They really didn't have any victory. Now, a lot of people, when I've been out on book tour, they've said, but how can you say that when you look at like the Montgomery bus boycotts? That's absolutely true. The Supreme Court ultimately said that, that you could not segregate in Montgomery. However, by 1963, sort of the intransigence of the Klan, it, to a certain extent, the bullheadedness of the Montgomery local government, it found ways around that Supreme Court ruling. And so when journalists would go to Montgomery, they would find that black people were once again sitting in the back of the bus. And I quoted one of the journalists who said, as if it was 1933 instead of 1963. So mm. if you keep that in mind, everything that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference had done prior to Birmingham had not worked which is a big reason why they were broke, which also begins to explain why they were sneered at by the press, not just that in the South, but that in the North. You see this over and over in you know, so-called liberal uh, New York outlets. And in addition to that, they were sneered at by their other civil rights colleagues. Right. I mean, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was something that started just a few years prior, really in Nashville in 1960 and headed by John Lewis. And the people beneath mm -hmm. John Lewis at this point in time that King is thinking of going down to Birmingham, they are writing him telegrams that say, you are a phony. You are not mm. the leader of this movement. So they had no respect. They had no money. And if they go to Birmingham, they were sure they were going to die. In fact, King delivered a mock eulogy just prior to their arrival in Birmingham, basically telling his deputies that I'm not sure I'm going to live through this. And everybody in that room kind of thought it was like twisted and dark. Ralph Abernathy, King's best friend, would later say that was King's only way to really deal with what he saw as just overwhelming stress and assured death, which is just to kind of turn it into a sick joke. And that's what he did. Mm -hmm. So that was that's 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 trying to frame up, I guess, what what was happening at that point in time. You've kind of hit on it a little bit. I'd like you to go further. There were many ideas during the civil rights movement, and these groups often clashed with one another. Talk to me about the failure in Albany, Georgia, that impacted Martin Luther King Jr. and his advisors, and how that informed the decisions that they made in Alabama. Yeah, yeah. So Albany was really the ghost that haunted the whole of the Birmingham yes. campaign because for like off and on over a year, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1962 tried to just stage and win, frankly, 
in hindsight, sort of small potatoes victories in this place called Albany, Georgia. And they were routinely beaten. They were they were outsmarted by a sheriff step uh, by a sheriff who realized that uh, his name is Lori Pritchett, and what Lori Pritchett realized was that oh well if these guys need violence to be visited upon them, and he he knew that because the SELC had been quite open about how they were sort of modeling what Gandhi had done in India. So Pritchett goes and he reads what Gandhi had done in India. He reads what King was, he, re, he read King's own work. And he realized that, okay, if nobody strikes these pastors, the press is going to lose interest. And if the press loses interest, they're mm. going to blame King for even having to come down here. And if that happens, the public persona is going to be that this movement is a failed one. And that is exactly what happened. Pritchett made sure that his deputies never strike the kneeling pastors at their feet as they protested. In some sense, they were arrested Mm -hmm. with almost like unctuous care as if these deputies and the sheriff himself were praying over the pastors at their feet, right? And so as a result of this, the press just comes to ridicule King, ridicule the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Again, that wasn't the only one. CORE, SNCC, other civil rights groups, they're like, what are you doing? This is an abysmal failure. This dries up the sort of uh, financial resources. Uh, And so, you know, by the time of Birmingham, I think Wyatt Walker said that they had less than $500 to their name in total, wow! Right, that was it. Was they, they they couldn't they couldn't begin to actually stage a massive protest in Birmingham just based on the resources that they had. And so, why did they? How, why did they go into a situation that looked optics wise like it would fail? Well, that's actually this is where somebody like Wyatt Walker comes into play. So, Wyatt Walker, um, King would later say he had one of the keenest minds in the movement. And Wyatt Walker, what he realized was we need to quit going to venues where we think we might win, which was the seven years prior to Birmingham. We need to instead go to cities where we are sure we will suffer. Mm. Because if we suffer while the still photographers from the New York Times, or the camera crews and producers from Walter Cronkite's Evening News film everything, well, then perhaps that footage can get to the conscience of white America. And in particular, the two most important Americans, the brothers that sat at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and the two brothers that Wyatt Walker and everybody else within the SCLC had wanted to pass real and meaningful civil rights legislation. So they were fully prepared to suffer, perhaps unto death, Mm. if it meant that perhaps maybe the Kennedy brothers would sponsor civil rights legislation, which it should be said, they wanted nothing to do with, absolutely nothing to do with at the start of those 10 weeks in Birmingham because civil rights legislation pulled terribly. And all of Jack's advisors, first and foremost, Bobby, who was not just the attorney general, but something like Jack's protector, was like, if we sponsor some sort of civil rights legislation, you are going to lose in 1964. So it's kind of like, hell no, are we going to do that? 
Mm. But they thought, why did they do it? It was a last-ditch attempt to go to Birmingham. They're broke. They have no esteem, right? They realize that they might die, but they also realize that if they are to ever succeed, they need to actually go to the most violent place in America and throw like sort of like a Hail Mary pass to mix the metaphors here a little bit, but like, but attempt to integrate a city that had been so firmly segregated. Because if they could, maybe, perhaps, turn their vehicles into vessels of suffering, turn their bodies into metaphors of the black experience itself, well, then maybe if they could succeed in Birmingham, it would give other black people in the South or black people in the Mm. North the sort of confidence to believe that they could overcome whatever they needed to overcome in their own cities And maybe collectively, everybody could pressure the Kennedy administration to sponsor the civil rights legislation that the Kennedy brothers wanted absolutely nothing to do with, sort of force their will upon the Kennedy brothers. I mean, it was that's why, to me, Birmingham is so amazing, because it's like Hmm. everything was against them, even reason. And yet they did it anyway. And they did it, Heather, and maybe this is really important for your audience as well, out of faith. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. Before we were recording, you asked me what my next book is about, and it's about passion. And I told you that I had, I literally had felt the Lord say, I need to read your book as I'm preparing to write mine. And now, listening to you, I know why. What I want to write about with passion is that the word passion actually means to suffer. Mm -hmm. And so people say, I'm passionate about this, but what they really mean is I want affirmation for this, and it feels really good. Passion is what are you willing to suffer for? That's where your actual passion is. And what we see in our leaders and then the civil rights movement was people that were willing to put their own bodies and their lives on the line because they were so passionate about this idea of, of inequality in humanity. Yeah. And so I'm really, I'm just so excited to keep going through your book and, and let it inspire me. Will you tell us a little bit about your personal story and why you felt called to write this book? You have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. So for me, it comes back really to my family dynamics. I'm a white guy. I'm married to a woman, Sonia, who's a black woman. 
We have three kids who identify as black. And it was really George Floyd's death that Mm. did a number on us. Here's why, Heather. So Sonia grows up in inner city Houston, primarily in Fifth Ward. George Floyd grew up in Third Ward, which is basically the adjacent Mm. neighborhood. Uh, George went to, Sonia and George are the same age, 46 at the time of George's death. Uh, George went to Yates High. Sonia had a lot of friends and, in fact, two of her closest friends, her dear cousins, who went to Yates. Sonia's cousin, Derek, knew George back then, remembered him as the tight end on the Yates High football team that went to the state championship game. So when George Floyd dies and we're watching it over and over on CNN, the murder felt almost personal in a way, especially yeah. for Sonia and my mother-in-law, Connie, who moved in with us after retirement and spent all of her life in Houston, too. And so because it felt almost personal, we did something we'd never done before. We allowed our three kids to see the footage of this. You know, mm-hmm. every instance before, all it, oh my gosh, going all the way back to pretty much the boys' birth. Our daughter was, let's see, 11 at that time. Our twin boys were nine. So there were numerous occasions where body cam footage or cell phone camera footage had captured an innocent black man dying by the hands of law enforcement, right? But we allowed our kids to see this. And really, it screwed them up. I mean, it was really, really hard. The questions moved from one of safety, am I actually safe, uh, to to ultimately, you know, one of even like, what is my value? Am am I... is my life, does my life carry so little value as well? And here's the thing, right? Like we, to a certain extent, Sonia in particular, Sonia taking the lead on this, she wanted them to be exposed to the idea that this is part of the black experience as well, right? Mm -hmm. And you need to know that. It got to the point where to whatever extent watching that had hardened them, and callous them, and perhaps even wizened our kids, it also sort of enclosed them in a prison of their own rage. And Mm. as that summer of 2020 stretches on, the rage and fear progresses. And Jacob Blake, if you remember from Kenosha, Wisconsin, so he walks away from cops, right? This is also captured on, I think it was somebody's cell phone. He walks away from cops And they shoot him seven times in the back while his three kids Mm -hmm. scream from the back of his car. And my son Walker saw that footage too. And he, I still remember this, he rises up and he says, why do they keep trying to kill us? And he leaves the room in tears and his twin brother Marshall gets up and he's in tears too and he runs after them. This rage that they felt, the cynicism that they felt, the sense that, like, I never want to live in America. Nothing good has ever come of this place. Sonia and I saw really an America that was warping back to some version of the Mm. 1950s. And we thought, well, maybe can we look to history to sort of find a solution? But it wasn't just a solution there. It was a sense of hope. And I had read just enough of the civil rights canon, especially after all three kids were born, especially after the boys were born, to become absolutely fascinated with Birmingham. And now Mm. in the wake of what Walker had said, I thought, well, I want to try to write a book that can 
turn that cynicism into something like optimism and give not only my kids, but anybody that may be suffering right now, a real sense of hope, a real sense of how they can turn around their lives based on the manner in which the civil rights leaders turned around Birmingham and in some sense really turned around the whole of America. I see Birmingham as something like the founding document of America. And here's why. In 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation passes. But from 1863 to 1963, there is in no way equality, right? In no way whatsoever. 100 years of Jim Crow, 100 years right. of pain and violence and lynching and terrible wages and second class and third class citizenship. And actually, the SCLC wanted a civil rights bill by 1963 on the 100th anniversary that in some sense declared itself as the real and lasting emancipation proclamation, right? Hmm. And the Kennedy brothers didn't want to do it. And yet across 10 weeks in Birmingham, because of everything that happens in Birmingham, by June of 1963, Jack and Bobby Kennedy do the thing they had once sworn they would never do. And Jack gets in front of the nation and he says, I'm going to sponsor civil rights legislation. And that legislation becomes the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that leads to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And that leads, among many other things, mm. to King's death in 68. But here's the thing. I think it's also a new life for his country. Because it's Shirley Chisholm being able to run for president in 72. It's the rise of the black middle and upper class across the latter half of the 20th century. It's Barack Obama's presidency. But it's also felt on a far more mm. granular level. It's my ability to marry Sonia in a former Jim Crow state like Texas and for the two of us to now mm -hmm. raise our three kids in a nation that doesn't harass us yeah. for who we are. You know, for the longest time, that was not the case, but it is the case now. So Birmingham to me is an incredibly personal story. Yeah because it's really my own. The life I'm leading today does not happen without those 10 weeks in 1963. Can you share with us a little bit about what you've learned about the faith component that moved this movement? Yeah. Let's actually start with the title. Mm. Um, you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. So first off, it was Fred Shuttlesworth who, who said that. And Fred, if, if, any, if anybody who reads this book, if, if they take away nothing else, I want them to realize the hero that Fred Shuttlesworth really was. I think that he should be as well known as King, um, and it's kind of a shame that he isn't uh, in, in most Americans' eyes. It's kind of a shame that most people don't even know who he is. But he was really the reason that King and the rest mm. even went to Birmingham. Fred Shuttlesworth was the lone pastor in Birmingham protesting at a time for civil rights and equality when nobody else would stand alongside him. He received numerous death threats from the Klan, from Bull Connor, who was the public safety commissioner, who basically oversaw the Birmingham Police Department, right? He survived attacks on his life, bombing attacks on his life. His home was bombed. I mean, he once stepped in front of a moving bus that refused to integrate I mean, he was nearly beaten to death when he tried to enlist his daughters in an all-white high school. And so when people, and in particular, 
When Harry Belafonte organized a fundraiser just prior to the Birmingham campaign, and he gathered all of these like really rich New Yorkers, you know, uh, and when Fred stood up that night and he started to tell the story of his life, people were just amazed. And they were like, what gives you Mm. that faith? And he says, you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. Now, for somebody like Fred, he meant Mm -hmm. that quite literally. But there was also a metaphoric and spiritual Mm. interpretation of that. Because Fred was a pastor at Bethel Baptist in Birmingham. He had grown up in the church. And for Fred, you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live also means you have to be prepared to move beyond that with Mm. which you're comfortable. You have to be prepared to go into the unknown. In other words, metaphorically speaking, you have to be prepared to Mm. die unto yourself a little bit. Because only when you do that do you lead the life of purpose, the life that God is asking you to lead. And for Fred, that meant the fight for equality, right? He was adamant that Mm -hmm. this is what God put him on this earth to do. And so he talks about this in the same way that like, even my own pastor has talked about this, which is there is every day, if you are striving toward that highest purpose in life, something like a resurrection that happens. Every day, if you are truly growing, either in your business or your faith or your personal development or whatever, in your health, in your relationships, and perhaps all of those things, if you are truly growing, You are dying a little Mm -hmm. bit unto who you are, if only to become the life, the true vigor of who you can be. Every day, in every way, there is a resurrection story, if you want to claim it. That's what Fred was really talking about. What has been some of the response that you've gotten from readers of this book? I would say overwhelmingly, it's been really positive. I don't say this as a means to boast, but just as a means to sort of state what's happened. Um... It was named to the both Amazon's and the New York Times's uh, best books of 2023 lists. Wow! Congratulations, that's amazing. Uh, Radar Pictures um, has optioned it to to be turned into a television series. Wow, Paul! Yeah, so, wait, now we have to back up. Wait, 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 wait! I need you to tell the people though. As you were writing this book, you actually lost your yes, job. So, so there's there's this there's this story thing. within the story. There's the story here. within the story. Yeah. And see, this is why my own faith really comes into play here. Hmm. I was raised, if I could just back up for just a second. Yeah. I was raised in the United Church of Christ, right? And I go off to college and basically read a ton of books that aren't on any church-approved list and spend a good (laughs) chunk of my 20s losing my faith, right? Hmm. By my early 30s, especially after my kids were born, I get this calling that I kind of want to just go back to some place where there's a sense of communion that I knew in my youth, if only because I want my kids to have that too. Hmm. And so that was kind of my faith for a long time. And then after George Floyd happened in 2020, remember, this is the pandemic. So I was working at the time at ESPN, uh, ESPN.com, and I was a writer and editor at ESPN the Magazine. ESPN the Magazine folds, which was where I was primarily employed. And with the pandemic fully raging, 
there were basically no sports on TV. So ESPN and Disney decide we have to do mass layoffs. I was one of those laid off in November of 2020. And so I was staring down the idea that I really want to go out on my own and write books for a living and make my own way. But I also know that doing so, what's to say it wouldn't bankrupt me? What's to say I wouldn't lose my house? What's to say Sonia wouldn't divorce me? What's to say, you know, I would only see the kids maybe once every, every other weekend, right? I didn't have any firm answers. What I did have, one of the only things I did have, was by the time I was laid off, I had a contract to write this book on Birmingham. Hmm. And so the research that I started into what gave them this faith to endure, Hmm. how and why were they optimistic in the face of so much terror and pessimism and cynicism? It moved from something that I wanted to capture for the purposes of like relaying it in the book to something I wanted to truly understand in my own life. And in Mm. particular, what Fred Shuttlesworth said and what he stood for so enamored me that I took a photo of Fred and I hung it on my, uh, in my kitchen on my refrigerator and I wake up early to write every morning. And so every morning when I go downstairs to like, you know, pour my glass of water, pour my coffee, I would stare at Fred and I would think about that resurrection story, right? I would think about you have to move beyond who you are to become the person of your highest purpose that God has ordained for you. And let me tell you, Heather, there were so many times that I felt like there is no way this is actually what I am ordained to do or like, or am I called to do, I should say, right? And there was so much doubt, crippling doubt. Numerous times where I thought I should get some nine to five job or even worse, abandon this book and just like provide for my family. We didn't do it and I stuck it out. And so when I talk about the success that the book has enjoyed today, I really see it as a deepening of my own faith and the gratitude that I have for God. Yeah. Paul Kicks is the author of You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live. You can order it today. You can read it with me. I'm reading it right now, y'all. You can get it wherever books are sold. Paul, our show is called Viral Jesus. I ask this as the last question every episode. What do you think it means to be a Christian when we go online? (laughs) (laughs) I love that question. Uh, Here's how I would answer it. I think it means to give to the world that which is most useful, that which Mm. is most compassionate, because online is sometimes anything but, right? Yeah. And if you can just be a good steward of your own self, perhaps others will take a little bit of inspiration in that. And then maybe come to ask you, well, you know, on what grounds do you find this like higher calling? Like, what's your motivation in Mm. life? And then maybe you can answer them at that point. You know what? I I just want to add to this. I think what you exemplify in Christianity 
is just somebody who has used their gifts and talents excellently. Oh, thank you. And that alone is a testimony, I think, to God. And I think what Christians are supposed to be doing, use your gifts to the best of your ability. So I'm just so grateful for you, friend. Paul Kicks is the author of You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live. You can get it wherever books are sold. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. So what can we learn from my conversation with Paul Kicks? Number one, the best way to tell a long form story is to add up how many ands it has. The more ands you have to tell, the better the story. Number two, I think sometimes when we think about black history, and we think about Selma, and we think about Martin Luther King Jr., we can think only about the civil rights movement and not also about the deep faith of these men that actually is what propelled them to keep pursuing justice. It was the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. It was the church that was at the forefront of civil rights in this country. Number three, Paul wrote this book while laid off from his job, and he said he was no longer even connected to his faith. And yet it was the research he was doing of these civil rights leaders and their commitment to their faith that brought him back to his own faith. Hearing and researching and gathering the stories of these leaders made Paul start to believe that you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Next week, we are sitting down with Lana Silk from Transform Iran. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a Viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus.